I invite you now, loved ones, to turn in your Bibles to find a scripture passage that we will consider this morning from Ephesians chapter 6, verse 16 to 20. As many of you know, for the past few weeks, we've been studying together here in this last part of the Apostles' letter to the Ephesians. We've been studying the Christian spiritual warfare against the devil and his legions. And God calls us to stand firm in his strength, not our own, clothed in the full armor of God. And last week we saw how Christ himself has given us his own spiritual armor our beloved friend who has befriended us and has given us his armor as a pledge of his undying love for us. And we also notice that the pieces of armor can be divided into two categories. The, the first set of three we looked at last week, well, those are to be fastened in place, fastened in place upon us. So the belt of truth, the breastplate of right, righteousness, and the sandal boots upon our feet. Now, the second set of three that we'll be looking at today, they are to be taken up, we'll see. The shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit. So we looked last week again at the, those first three that are to be fastened upon our heart, and now we will consider the second three, which are to be prayerfully taken up. And so with that, let's give our attention to the reading of God's holy word here from Ephesians chapter 6, verse 16 to 20. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Pray also for me that whenever I speak, words may be given to me so that I, will be fearless, that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Well, as we considered last week, we are presenting here, or God's word is presenting to us the very armor which Christ himself wore. The armor he wore to the cross, spiritually, for us. And I pause this week and I consider for the first time the etymology of the word crucifixion. Um, it's a word that obviously we all know of and have heard a lot, crucifixion. But I wanted to look a little bit more deeply at what this word means, the root words uh, behind it. And the first part of the word is from the Latin term crux, crux, which obviously refers to cross. And the second one is fixio, from the Latin forgere, which means to fasten or to affix. And so, uh, crucifixion in Latin means death by affixing to a cross. Death by affixing to a cross. So we see that Christ was willingly affixed to the cross until death for us so that he himself could be now affixed to our hearts unto eternal life. 
He was affixed to a tree with all of our lies, impurity, slothfulness, so that instead, in a place, he could affix to our hearts truth, righteousness, and peace. Jesus was fastened upon wood so that those first three pieces of armor that we looked at last week could now be fastened upon our hearts in a fixed position, prepared for the battle, there to protect us spiritually. But as I already mentioned, this second set of three that today we are considering are a bit different. Because the Apostle Paul changes the verb here from put on or fasten on to now take up. Take up the shield of faith. Take up the helmet of salvation. Take up the sword. Now, why does he change the verb? Why does he use a different word here? Well, the first three pieces, they are for preparation in the spiritual battle. They are to be fixed in place, not to be removed. But the last three are specifically for moments of action. They are meant to be taken up before entering a spiritual battle. And so we recognize that we are always at war with the devil, but the battle is not always upon us in the sense that there are moments when the battle is fierce. Then there are also seasons where we are kind of in a place of peace and tranquility. But always, always the larger picture is that there is a spiritual war that is raging on, which we just sang from Psalm 2. And if the battle is not currently at your doorstep, then we can be sure that it is at the doorstep of other Christians, your neighbors or those around the world. And so these last three, they are to be taken up for the heat of the battle. They are a bit more occasional. They are meant for action specifically. And the great preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones, he gives a helpful illustration here. Uh, He basically says that if you're a soldier, imagine you are a soldier and you're resting in your tent with your comrades, right? And you've laid down your shield, you've taken off your helmet, and your sword is down beside you, but you're still wearing your leather belts and your breastplate and your sandal boots. You don't take those off. And then, suddenly, a horn blasts. You hear it. It rings out. It's a signal that the enemy is upon you and fast approaching. So what do you do? Well, you jump to your feet, right? And you take up your shield. You put on your helmet and you grab your sword, mentally preparing for battle. That is the word picture, in a sense, that should help us understand this second category, this second set of three articles or pieces of the armor of God. Whereas the first three are to be always fastened upon our heart at all times, these last three are specifically to be taken up in the occasion of battle. So let's look at that first one that equips us for spiritual battle. Shield of faith. The shield of faith. Apostle Paul tells us in verse 16, in addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. So notice how he starts off this this sentence here saying, in addition to all this. This is more evidence of that division that we've already noticed between the first set of three and now this second set of three. And then notice what he says here, that we must remember that like the rest of the full armor of God, this shield, this is the shield which comes from God. 
The shield of faith is God's armor. This is the full armor of God. It belongs to him, and therefore, it is a gift from God. And so we can conclude from this that faith itself is God's property. It belongs to God and is a gift that he gives to us and in different measures to each of us. Now, why is this shield of faith so necessary in the heat of battle? Why do you need a shield if you have a sword to protect you? Well, if you were an ancient foot soldier, a Roman foot soldier, unless you had kind of Jedi Knight skills with your your sword, you can't block flaming arrows that are coming at you, multiple ones that are coming at you at the same time, right? You need a larger, broader kind of shield that's going to be able to protect you, a wider, broader protection. And typically, these ancient shields were quite large. They're about two feet wide and four feet tall and concaved. And so, the way they would work is that they were big enough for the average soldier to kneel down and safeguard his whole body protected by the shield before him, covering up every aspect of his body as a shelter, a shield about him. Now, how is faith like that? Well, faith is broad. Faith embraces all of God's promises, and that is the idea that the more you grab a hold by faith of the promises of God, which are for you, yes and amen in Christ, then the wider and the broader your shield will be in the moment of battle. Think of each promise in God's word as a kind of a square inch of the shield of your faith. You want to be covered, right? You want to be able to protect your whole self. Well, take up the shield of faith by trusting in all of God's promises for you. Now, how does this work? How do we take up the shield of faith, these promises of God? Well, by meditating on the very promises of God found in his word. The more you lay a hold of the promises of God, then the broader and wider the shield of faith will be for you a protection. Just take, for example, the promise in Hebrews 13:5, where God said, Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. What a great promise. And the more you believe in that promise of his continual presence with you and commitment to you, then the less you will feel insecure and alone. He will never abandon you. He will never cast you out. He will always be by your side. So take up in faith that promise and protect your heart. Protect your heart. Another example is the promise in 1 Peter 5, 7, where he says, cast all your anxiety on him for he cares for you. And the more you believe that God really cares for you, then the less anxious you will feel in life. The more you realize that God cares for you in a perfect way, perfect, because he is perfect, well, then the more secure and comforted you will feel. Would you ever dare say that his care for you is less than perfect? Well, never. If not, then why are you anxious about what he has planned for you tomorrow? He is perfect, and his care plan for you is perfect as well. And it says here he cares for you. He personally cares for you. God has deep affections of love for you, Christian, he watches over you with the utmost care and attention that is precise and perfect in every way. 
As Psalm 121 says, the Lord is your keeper. He doesn't sleep or snore on the job. He lets nothing slip past him. His care for you is perfect, flawless. He knows exactly what you need, when you need it, and he will give it to you. As Jesus himself taught about the lesson on anxiety and trust, God, your Father, he cares for you by comparison, he cares for annoying crows. You know those crows that are just squalling and just annoying us? He cares for them, each and every one of them. How much more does he care for you, his beloved child, adopted by the blood of Christ, the apple of his eye? You see, the more you believe that he cares for you in this way, the more you believe that he will never cast you out, then the less anxious and insecure you will feel. So this is how, by example, just by meditating on truths and found in God's word, this is how we take up this shield of faith, meditating on the wide and broad promises of God. But what's more, Paul also adds that this shield of faith can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. In, in ancient battles, the soldiers, they would wrap the tips of their arrows with flammable material, and then in the, in the battle, they would ignite it before shooting it. And this was a method of attack the enemies would start off with. Their first method of attack, hurling a whole profusion of fiery arrows down upon their enemies and from a distance, right? Why? Striking them, burning their enemies, rendering them either dead or useless in the battle, and thereby they would proceed to take charge and attack while you were weak and vulnerable. You see, this was the first line of attack, rendering the opponent weak and vulnerable. It's very similar even to modern warfare of bombings, where they literally blast a hole in the enemy's line of defense. And this is how the evil one, the devil, works first from a distance, hurling his flaming arrows at us, trying to trying to get us off guard, weak and injured. And then he charges when we are weak and vulnerable. What are his flaming darts? We could spend a lot of time looking at that, but in, in brief, it's all deceit, all lies, all trickery. Whatever comes at us, deceitful, tricking us. And since his fiery darts are the first line of attack, they come suddenly when we do not expect them, when we feel at peace and we are not always prepared. Perhaps you'll have a whole day or a season of blessing, and then the devil will strike you with some trouble or accusation, some word from a friend or a neighbor. Why? Because in times of peace and prosperity, we let our guard down, right? I know I do at times. It's easy to let our guard down. We don't see his darts that are hurling at us from a distance. Now, one thing that the ancient soldiers did in preparation for these, arrow, these arrows that are inflamed, right, and coming at them, is that they would dip their shields in water before the battle. And their shields were covered in a thick outer layer of leather that would soak up that water. And therefore, in the battle, as they lifted up their shields, the leather soaked in the water would catch the darts or the, the arrows and extinguish the flame because they were moist, they were wet, in a sense. And in that way, keep them from being engulfed in the flames. So we see that God has given us faith 
to protect us from being consumed by the flames of the evil one. Faith does not give us a free pass around the trials and troubles of life, but rather God keeps us from being consumed by the flames, by sustaining our faith. And by looking at this faith, we must realize that this is not a passive faith. It must be an active faith. We must, as he says, take it up, take it up. We must dip our shield, in a sense, in the waters of God's steadfast love for us. Time and time again, we must soak our faith in the faithfulness of God for us so that we can extinguish those flaming arrows of the evil one. This is how we withstand in the evil day and withstand the flaming darts of the devil. We must hold up by faith the truth of God for us in Christ. This is how we overcome all deceit and trouble in this world. As 1 John 5, 4 says, everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith, our faith. So remember, faith, as we lift it up, as we take it up, is faith, it does not ever point to itself. The power of faith is not in itself, but rather the object of faith, God and his promises. And so, in the heat of battle, take up that shield of faith, dip it again in God's love for you, and hold it strong, pointed in faith towards God and his promises for you to offer you that broad and wide protection. And most of all, trust that Christ himself is the shield of your help. Christ is your shield. So that's the shield of faith. Now let's look at the helmet of salvation. The Apostle Paul proceeds to tell us, take the helmet of salvation. Take up the helmet of salvation. Now, these ancient helmets, they were basically leather-fitted caps that were then encased with a hard metal layer on the outside. We can ask a general question, what is the purpose the basic purpose of any helmet? Well, it's to prevent hard hits to the head, right? And if you've ever been hit hard in the head at some time in your life in sports, um, in football, or whatever it might be, you know how disorienting that can be, right? If you get badly concussed, well, you'll be badly disoriented. You'll be weak on your feet. You'll forget what happened to you at times, and you can't even remember what you're doing and where you are. It's disorienting. And so we should think of this helmet of salvation as this thick protective filter and layer protecting us from what we are taking in with our eyes and our ears, protecting us from getting hit in the head by various blows from the evil one as he approaches us through things of the eyes and through words coming to our ears. And what do I mean? Well, in this spiritual battle, we need to cultivate discernment. We need to be able to see the spiritual quality of things around us. We need to have a vision of the field before us in battle. Nothing before us in our day-to-day -day life, nothing is completely neutral. Everything that we watch or listen to is weighted with spiritual value. The things that you take in with your eyes and ears will either orient your heart in one direction or into another direction, either more towards the love of God and his kingdom, which is faithful, or love of self and the failing kingdoms of this world. And so we must cultivate discernment about what we are taking in with our eyes and our ears, lest we be knocked 
and concussed and disoriented and pointed in the wrong direction. Well, you see the helmet focuses here not so much on the precise attacks of the devil, but his overall strategy to misguide and misdirect our hearts to get us disoriented and forgetful and spiritually concussed. And how does he work this strategy to misdirect our hearts? Well, again, he does it through the desires of the eyes, the lusts of the heart, and the pride of life, as 1 John says. He aims at turning our hearts cold and lifeless towards God little by little. He's, he has a target of challenging us intellectually, and he plays nasty mind games. He taunts us, he intimidates us, he entices us with all kinds of things. And most of all, the, I think the devil wants each Christian to fall into a kind of despair, a hopelessness, a lifelessness, which is precisely why God has given us not just any helmet, but specifically the helmet of salvation. And what salvation does he refer to here? Well, here salvation refers to the future promise of salvation, that God will deliver you. He will deliver you. He will deliver you from all your trials, all your difficulties, even your final encounter with death. He will deliver you. That same use of the term salvation is found in 1 Thessalonians 5, 8 through 9, where Paul says this, Since we belong to the day, let us be sober, putting on faith and love as a breastplate, and the hope of salvation as a helmet. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, is hope, hope. Hope that we will be finally delivered from all our troubles. And by faith in Christ, Paul says we're not appointed to suffer wrath on the last day. No, but to receive his future deliverance. That is what is appointed for you in Christ. Hope, hope. The helmet of salvation is our hope of future deliverance. The hope of the crown that is after the cross. The hope of glory which comes after death. It is a hope that all those who, whom God has justified, he will glorify in the end. That is the hope of our salvation. And how does this counterattack the devil's strategy as he assails us? Well, the hope of glory, this sure confidence, it keeps our eyes focused on the prize, oriented towards the love of God and his kingdom in the midst of all the world's distractions. This is the hope that keeps us going in the fight. Is it not our hope of final redemption, the resurrection of our bodies? And this is what Paul himself mentions and refers to when he encourages us as Christians to face all kinds of sufferings in this present evil age, saying that in Romans 8, the sufferings of this present evil age are not worth comparing to the eternal weight of glory that is to be revealed for us in Christ. They're not worth comparing. It's the hope that he holds out to keep us going. He doesn't just tell us that to be learned as a fact intellectually, doctrinally. No, he presses it upon our heads like a helmet, in a sense, to keep us focused in the midst of hope, or in the midst of the, in the, midst of the fight with hope. And this shows us, this shows us how God has given us his great helmet of salvation. The very helmet that Christ 
himself wore in his own life and ministry. As Jesus approached the cross, he put on the helmet of salvation. He entrusted himself to, to the one who judges justly, it says. He knew that his father would raise him up. He trusted in that promise, even after death itself. And the author of Hebrews says that he endured the cross for the joy that was set before him. He didn't lose his head in the battle. He never became disoriented. His heart was always pointed towards love of God, love of neighbor, and God's kingdom. Always. He was fully persuaded that his good father would give him the joy that was promised to him before the foundations of the world. The joy, the redemption of his own body from death but also the redemption of the elect, those whom he came to represent and die for. And because Jesus wore that helmet of salvation for us, we now have the same sure hope of our full redemption in Christ. And Christian, the deliverance of Jesus' body from the grips of death and hell's gates, that is the guarantee that you too will be delivered and raised up and glorified on the last day. Because death did not hold him down who is the head, well, death will not hold down his body either. And if you belong to his body, it cannot hold you down because the head has already risen and you too will rise with him. Believe in him and he will save you. The promise goes to the uttermost, to the uttermost. So I hope you see the value of this helmet of salvation that the more you are full of hope, fully persuaded of your eternal inheritance, and the more you can endure the trials of this short life, short life, which elsewhere Paul calls our light momentary affliction, which is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So then, Christians, as the devil's strategy is to disorient us, rendering us spiritually concussed, forgetful, and despairing, will take up the helmet of salvation that Christ has given you. And lastly, we look at the sword of the Spirit. Here the Apostle Paul tells us also to take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. In all the armor of God that we've been considering, well, this is our only weapon that he gives, the only weapon that he gives us to fight against the devil. We can't hurt him in any other way than this, by the word of God. But we do have this weapon, and we can hurt him, we can render him weak and running. We've been equipped with a sharp weapon. You know, the most uh, common Roman soldier would have a kind of sword about them that was fairly short, and they were mainly used to jab alongside the shield that they would be holding, jab straight at the enemy in order to pierce vital organs of the enemy and then withdraw it. So not a typical sword fight, kind of the medieval style, but these jabbing kind of short swords that were meant for thrusting at the enemy. So how are we to use God's word as a sword to jab at the evil one who assails us? And I think it's in this way, by reciting out loud the scriptures, out loud, verbally declaring God's word. You see, when we memorize scripture and quote scripture, it's kind of like taking the sword out of its sheath and jabbing it at the devil who is there, present, spiritually. 
And this is how we resist them, with the promise that God will send the devil fleeing when he hears the word of God and its authority rightly applied. As James says in his letter, resist the devil and he will flee from you. That is a promise. He will flee from you. Now, how do we know for sure that this is how it works? What's a case study that we find in Scripture? Well, we find our Lord Jesus himself in the wilderness being tempted for 40 days by the devil himself. There, three times the devil presented him with temptations, twisting the very word of God, trying to trip him up. And how did Jesus respond? Well, each time he quoted verses from the Old Testament that contained the very truth of God that applied to the temptation that was upon him, fitted and appropriate to the occasion. And how did Satan respond to God's word as declared by Jesus? He fled like a dog with his tail tucked beneath his legs. He ran, just as God promises. When we resist him, he will flee. And consider this, that even the Son of God, when tempted by the devil, quoted the written word of God. He didn't need a new word of God to resist the devil. He didn't need a new revelation. No, he went to the tried and true word of God in written form. And that shows us that the written word of God is sufficient for our battle against sin and the devil. In his second letter to Timothy, chapter 3, verse 16 to 17, Paul tells us this about the sufficiency of God's word. Hear this. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. It is profitable it is useful. It is sufficient. God's word was sufficient for the Son of God in the heat of battle, and so it is sufficient for you as well, Christian. We see that the Spirit has supplied us with this sword. It's in your sheath already, Christian, spiritually speaking, the inspired word of God. And sadly, as I was thinking about this, in our day and age, well, we have more Bibles typically in our homes than any generation or any other time in history. Christians have never been so blessed and privileged to have the written word of God there before them, so easily to be accessed. And yet, despite that, we probably know the Bible less than many other generations in human history. This is a sad fact. What a shame. We have these shiny kind of decorated swords with golden commentaries engraved upon them, and we just leave them in sheep collecting dust. Why don't we unsheath the Word of God on a regular basis? Well, I think it means because it means that we are overly confident in our own selves, in our own strength, and we underestimate the power of the evil one. And so avail yourself of this weapon that God has given you. Keep it at hand and ready, and have certain promises, precise promises of God's Word memorized. Equip your mind and heart with those passages of Scripture so that you can quote them aloud at any time and any occasion. And not only will those key verses that you memorize comfort your soul when you hear aloud the word of God, but as we've already heard, it will send the devil fleeing. Well, how so? How does it work? How does it send the devil fleeing? Well, isn't the devil, he's a crafty prosecuting attorney, a lawyer, that brings all kinds of accusations against you. And so you must appeal to the authority of God's word 
as he comes at you. You must appeal to God's word and his promises, not anything in yourself. Because if you appeal to anything else outside of God's word and what God has said about you in Christ, then the devil will rise up and shout, Objection! And you will have no power to withstand him. If you appeal to your heart, for example, well, the devil will object and say, Too subjective, based on feelings, emotions. If you appeal to your own good works, the devil will rise up and cry objection and will say, I have evidence, Your Honor, that his good works are not enough. But if you speak God's own word as inspired by the Holy Spirit, the devil has no lawful objection that he can raise against you because God's word is irrefutable evidence from the most reliable witness of all, the Spirit of God. And so he will run you know, I believe this, this way this works, as I was meditating on this, is kind of like, and bear with me here, it is kind of like the expecto patronus spell in the fictional story of Harry Potter. And I know some of you might be on the edges of your seat at this moment, but hear me out. J.K. Rowling is very clever as an author. The Latin phrase expecto patronus in that story Well, it means, literally, I wait for a helper. I wait for a helper. And so in the book, in this story, when someone says aloud those words, a helper of light appears and runs off, scares off these evil dementors, which are imaginary evil creatures that suck happiness and life out of people. So naturally, of course, dementors is very related in its root to demons as well. And so, how does this apply? Well, when we feel oppressed in some way, in any given situation, and we say aloud God's word, especially promises related to a particular trial, well, then we wait for our helper to come. And who is the helper that Christ has promised us? The Holy Spirit. And he will draw near to us, and he will send those demons fleeing and running off. But it's important to clarify here, that doesn't mean that all of your problems can be resolved by quoting scripture. And that's where some people get this wrong. It doesn't mean that you will totally feel happy after quoting scripture or that all the trials will immediately be erased from your life. But it does mean that the devil and his demons will flee for a time and leave you in relative peace from their tormenting presence. And in this broken and troubled world around us, well, life is hard enough. And we can't do anything necessarily about those trials that all will come upon us. But we can send the devil fleeing. And that's what God is calling us to. When he says, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Because the devil, he wants to drain us of the little happiness and joy that we have left. He wants us hopeless, joyless, lifeless. And so even though you can't get rid of your troubles, you can get rid of him for a time. And so God has given you this sword of the Spirit to jab at him, to send him away limping, wounded by the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. But notice a big difference between the imaginary world of Harry Potter and ours, that unlike wizards, we do not claim that we have any power of our own, to make the devil flee. We're not conjuring up our own power to send him fleeing. No, the power does not reside in us or even in our saying aloud God's word 
in itself. Rather, the power is in the presiding presence of the Holy Spirit. Because this is, after all, the sword of the Spirit. He is the one who takes it and executes the strikes against the devil. What do I mean? Well, God's promise is to accompany with power the speaking of his word. Every time. We learn this in the Old Testament in Isaiah where it says that never does his word return to him vain or empty. It always produces its desired effect. Always. And what does the Father desire to do when you resist the devil and say aloud his word, the word of God? Well, God's desired effect is that the devil will flee. We already heard that. We know that's his desire because he's promised it to us. And so we are to trust in that promise, and he will send him fleeing. But considering that, do you know it well enough? Do you know God's word well enough? Do you know where to turn to when you are stressed out, when you are anxious, when you are troubled? Do you know where to go when you are grieved? and lamenting and need comfort do you know where to find those passages in scripture if you don't know it well enough when trouble finds you you will be like a man scrambling about trying to find where he's where he stashed his his sword and you'll be wounded we need to be quick on our feet we need to have god's word ready and prepared and not be too little too late now i have to admit that I do not know God's word as I wish, as I'd hope. There's so much more that I could memorize and learn and grow in. And in a sense, the actual word of God, the sword that I carry about in my heart and my mind, is quite dull still on the details. I used to, back in the day, memorize more scripture and had more prepared and at the ready. But now it's, it's hard. It seems like life just doesn't allow for the time to, to pause and meditate and memorize scripture. And what else would the devil want than that? To see Christians letting their swords grow dull, dull and rusted, not taking them up, not sharpening them. And this is partially why I came to that idea of meditating prayerfully upon God's word day in and day out, morning, midday, and evening, Letting that word of God enter into my heart, sharpening that sword of the Spirit with prayerful meditation. Lest we be like, like a man entering into a gunfight with a butter knife. No. You want to have a sharp sword. You want to know God's word, be prepared and ready for action to take it up. And we have to do that prayerfully in meditation which is why then the Apostle Paul at the end of our passage transitions to an exhortation regarding prayer. Prayer. These are to be taken up prayerfully. Since our greatest enemy is spiritual in nature, it makes sense that Paul would call us to appeal to the Holy Spirit for strength, stamina, and success in this battle. And so he calls us in verses 18 to 20 to be prayerfully alert to pray for one another as well. Notice that. This is not simply an individualistic battle. This is a battle that we stand side by side together in and against the devil. And notice that the, Paul, the Apostle Paul, he focuses here on fearlessness. That word fearlessness in our translation can also be translated boldness, confidence, or courage. Isn't that the virtue that every soldier should have? 
especially in the heat of the battle. When that horn blasts and evil is upon us, we must take up our shield of faith, our helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, not timidly, not with great fear and trepidation, no, but with courage and confidence. But where do we get that confidence from? What instills confidence and courage in us? It's by setting our eyes on our captain, Jesus Christ, he who already charged forward into enemy lines for us by coming to this earth and dying on the cross. Christ, again, he took up those pieces of armor for us, and we remember that this is the Lord's battle, and he has already secured the victory, and now he calls us to stand firm and to hold the line together. And so take courage, take courage in this, that Christ laid down his life in order that we could take up life in him. He left himself open to strikes and lashes and the spit of his enemies so that we could take up the shield of faith and protect ourselves. He was crowned with thorns so that we might be crowned with the helmet of his salvation. And he gave up his last breath in order to give us the sword of the Spirit, which is, very, is the very Word of God breathed by the Spirit for us. Why did Jesus do that? So that you, Christian, so that you, you can take up these very gifts of God's armor for you. Lay claim to them. Do not ignore them. Do not neglect these gifts. Jesus doesn't want us to simply study this passage, move on, and forget what we've learned here. No, our King is calling us to fasten daily upon our hearts this armor of God and to prayerfully take up these pieces of armor for action. Our Captain is calling us to this. May the Spirit of God strengthen us evermore to stand against the devil, clothed in the full armor of God. Amen. Father God, we thank you for what Christ has done for us and that by your Spirit we are now found in him, secured with the hope of eternal salvation and the promise of future deliverance as a helmet about us and that you have put in our hands, in a sense, the sword of the Spirit to defend ourselves and to attack the devil and send him fleeing. And Lord, you have given us that shield of faith, broad and wide, as broad and wide as your promises and your love are for us, to protect us and shield us from all harm. Lord, we ask that you would give us the courage to take these up, especially in moments of battle, in moments of trouble and trial, that we too might stand firm, not just as individuals, but as a body, as a community of faith. Strengthen us by your mighty power, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.